As I was reflecting on what I'd like to share with you this evening, I, I was just reflecting on uh, how lucky I feel to have been able to come here to Vallecitos for so many years. Um, and uh, I, I want to really thank the, the communities that made that possible. In particular, Stephen, I thank you. I don't know if you remember so many years ago in 2005, the Open Heart Sangha had uh, in, invited my uh, mentor Eric Kolvik here, and then Eric Kolvik invited me, and maybe maybe the other uh, Tao Sangha was in, in the works during that year. But they had sponsored uh, one of uh, a a retreat here, and ever since then I've been able to come here most years. And what I feel so grateful about is to receive these teachings that we receive here from the natural world. I have found them to be so powerful for my own practice. As Aaron and I love to say, which is so true, you know, the real teachers are out there. And that's, I can't speak for Aaron. That's, what, that's why I like teaching this. You know, I feel like we get a little break. You know, it doesn't really matter what happens tonight. <laughs> Real teachers out there. We just share with you some words, and uh, or I just share with you some words, and hope they won't be too misleading. Uh, but we'll see tonight. And I, I want to point out that I, I think that what I've come to realize is that the natural world has been so important, and you find this especially in early Buddhism. You know, to remember that the Buddha did all of his practice basically most of his practice, outside. The whole idea of having a vihara or a monastery come came later on once the monastic order was formed, after the Buddha had come to full awakening. And as Aaron shared last night, so much of the instruction is referring to that, of to leaving the village and coming into the forest. And the Buddha is clear about this. For example, the numerical discourses, he's giving these lists of what monastics and practitioners can expect in terms of growth in their practice and not decline. And one of those elements, as he says, is as long as practitioners take care to live in the wilderness, then they can expect growth and not decline. So how to understand this? What do we get from practicing in the wild? I think the Zen monk, the uh, Zen monk and poet Ikkyu put it well in his lovely, irreverent way towards Zen and Buddhism, as he loved to do. He said, Every day priests minutely examine the Dharma and endlessly chant complicated sutras. Before doing that, though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and rain, the snow and moon. How to read those love letters that are being sent every day to you from the rain and the wind, the rustling leaves, how can we begin to hear those, to understand that language? And that's what I'd like to share with you tonight, is just some reflections about learning this language 
this language of the land that is out there moment after moment after moment, sharing with us the Dharma. How can you start to hear that? How can you start to allow it to influence your practice and your path? No matter what's going on in your practice or in your life. Some of you probably have come here, you know, I don't know, maybe in the midst of joys and good times in your life, but maybe also you've come here carrying those dissatisfactions and troubles in your life. Like that, that striking image that Aaron shared with us last night of the station wagon putting on the brakes. <laughs> there, All of our troubles are sitting right next to us. And here we are in such a beautiful place. Or maybe navigating difficult family situations in your life, or simply navigating the news these days, huh? Wow. Navigating our troubled world, navigating challenges around health. This is our human predicament, and this is often what the Buddha is talking about, is how to navigate these challenges. Those love letters out there, I think, are saying something to us about how to do that. And it could be something deeper. It could be just navigating the, the inevitable demise of our own lives, our inevitability of our death. Um, some of you here, I know I've spoken with you, that as, as the years go on and there's a feeling that you're coming close to the end, this really poignant feeling of how close death is and how important it is to really begin to, to wrestle with that, to, to bring that into one's practice. And for the rest of you, you're just deluded about how one camp or the other, right? <laughs> And of course, this is such a, a big part of uh, Buddhist practice. The, the Buddha gave these five daily reflections for both lay practitioners and monastics, which much of it, not all of it, centers around keeping this at the forefront, that, that our lives are, are so ephemeral. Which is the, the great poet Chesua Miwosh puts it well. He says, the partition separating life from death is so tenuous. The unbelievable fragility of our organism suggests a vision on a screen, a kind of mist, condenses itself into human shape, lasts a moment, and then scatters. It's our human predicament. That's what we're in the midst of. And I hear echoes of that in the love letters. Have you seen that scattered around out there, the remembrance of the fragility of our organism, seeing the the dead trees or maybe even coming across a dead animal? It's, It's what's so part and parcel of the wild.
So how to start to read these love letters that might inform us about our human predicament, whether it be that family situation, our own death that's coming, our health issues. How to really hear them and understand them. And my main concern about sharing with you these reflections is uh, I worry that I might give you some kind of answer. (laughs) And I think that would be a horrible thing about this Dharma talk. If you come away with some kind of answer about what those love letters are saying to you. Because I don't know. I have no idea what you'll learn out there. Or what you'll come to discover when you learn to listen to that language. I can't share that with you. Because then it wouldn't be those love letters. It'd just be some idea that I gave you. And it's so paltry to what's out there. So we'll see how it goes. I apologize if you if you leave with an answer. (laughs) So maybe a little bit about how to read those love letters or how to begin to listen to that language so that it comes alive. Because you might know what that's like, you know, when you learn, when you've learned how to read, how a whole world can come alive. Like if I say that to you right now, if you think of perhaps a book that you've read, maybe a novel, and have you ever, can you, can you think back now of when you read a novel and what a powerful experience that was because it brought a whole world alive that could be so emotionally moving, you know, whether it be the Odysseus by Homer or something more recent like Tony Morrison's Beloved or, you know, the... The eyes were watch their their eyes were watching God by by Zora Neale Hurston. Powerful literature like that. And I want to point out something about that literature. It's not like again we have some kind of answer at the end, but sometimes we have a feeling that moves us, that changes our life, sometimes in, in unknown ways. And what I want to point out is that nature is always speaking to us speaking to us moment after moment. And sometimes that's maybe something that we've lost with uh, this move into uh, modern ways of living. You know, during the Buddhist time, it was just commonplace that when one, one was in the forest, there would be hearing the voices of, for example, tree, tree spirits or devas or celestial beings. The natural world was alive and it was speaking. And it was just assumed that that was the world one lived in. Yet with the age of reason and rationality, a lot of times what's happened is that that world has died. The voice we can't hear as much anymore. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say that the modern world is a bad world. I'm a modern being situated that way, I want to be sensitive to what's been left out and to see if it can be reclaimed. And it can be tough as a modern person because often what comes with, as one philosopher put it, moderns believe that other people believe. 
Does that make sense? It's like we, the, the modern perspective is we look at other peoples, especially like indigenous peoples, and we say, oh, they're the ones that believe things, and we're beyond belief. But we don't see that that too is a belief. To think that nature does not speak to us is a belief. So I, I want to just name the trickiness of it. And I, I don't know how all of you are situated, so nature speaking to, to you might be a very natural thing, and others, it might be more of a, of a leap. But also, it might be really important. I, I contend that it's very important, just given the condition our world is in as well. Czech philosopher uh, Razim um, Kohak puts it well. He said, set aside the learned ways of perceiving the world as dead matter for your use, and instead, see if you can recover again your actual perception of the world as a community of beings to whom you are meaningfully related. What's it like to begin to hear those love letters, to really acknowledge that we're in a, a community of living beings out there? Not just the trees and the grass, but even maybe the rocks and the dirt and the water running. And it's probably, many of you hopefully know that many thinkers that think that changing our perception in this way is one of the essential pieces to uh, addressing the environmental catastrophe that we find ourselves in the midst of. So I want to point out that hearing these love letters has ripple effects beyond just our own lives and our own troubles, but also uh, it has ripple effects, hopefully, to this troubled world that we live in. Nature is speaking to us. And what I want to at least invite is that I'm, I'm inviting this notion that it's speaking to us in a particular way, that it's uh, speaking to us the Dharma itself. And again, this is expressed by a, a Chinese poet, uh, Su Tang Po, and he expresses this in a poem that he uh, wrote after an awakening he had out practicing in the wild. And he's speaking really about the Buddha, the, the Buddha being manifested through the natural world. And he says, the sounds of the valley streams, it's like the sound that's out there. The sounds of the valley streams are his long, broad tongue. The forms of the mountains are his pure body. And in this very night, I heard the many sutras, the many teachings uttered. Ah, how can I relate to others, what they say? That was his expression of his experience of awakening. Nature speaking those love letters to him in a way that freed his heart. And also, I, I don't want to make this to be some kind of foreign thing. I think already some of the things I've heard from some of you have been really expressions of hearing those love letters. Some of the things I heard in the group discussions and elsewhere uh, uh, expressed learning something and hearing things. So I, I want to point out this is happening and happening in all kinds of ways, in many ways, in probably many different languages that we're hearing. 
And I, I want to point out uh, how immediate it is and how easy it is for us to really hear those teachings out there and to point out how well-designed we are to hear those love letters. It's important to remember that, that what the eyes see, how the eyes see the world out there, has been shaped by the world out there. The, the placement of the eyes for us mammals, the way they're placed, is because of, how we, of the relationship that we've had with nature. So the flowers that have been seen for millions of years, the different creatures, the trees, the rivers that have been seen, have shaped how these eyes have worked. Just as nature has shaped how the eyes of a moth works or a bee, which works so radically different, they see such a different world than these eyes do. To remember that these eyes arose together with this world, with nature. The ears and how they hear, how they're positioned on the head, that's been shaped over millions and millions of years with this relationship with the natural world. How your body works, how the legs, your legs carried you up to discovery point to be able to feel the steepness and the terrain. That was shaped by millions of years of being on terrain, just like that. This is the body that we live in, a body that is shaped and molded by nature. And hopefully you can hear from that, our bodies are nature. That's the big understanding to get. That's what we arose out of. And yes, we've shaped it also, sometimes in very unskillful ways. But we arise out of that, and we see that just in how these senses function. It's a manifestation of nature. And I find that that I come back to this again and again and again, because sometimes my mind just doesn't get it. And some of it is because I notice the narratives that have been fed around where we come from. Sometimes some stories. Some that you might be familiar with, like one story. Once upon a time, there was this person named Adam. And then there was this other person named Eve. And they came around after a few days after the world was created, and they were kind of molded from clay, and then they were plopped into the world. Do you hear how that is such a different narrative that of, of arising together with the world? That's a whole different story. That already is implying a kind of asymmetrical kind of relationship, a, a kind of um, bifurcation in what we are. A separation from nature. As if here I am gazing out onto nature. But then... That's such a false narrative. It's just nature looking at nature. That's a more accurate description, don't you think? It's the idea that here I am looking at nature. There's something very problematic about that. At least from a a, a Buddhist point of view. So here it is. We are nature. We, We arise from it. And if that's the case, it is so easy to hear those love letters. So much easier than reading novels. I mean, reading novels, what, what is that? has just been going on for a few hundred years or something? 
of course, some of you might know, some people feel like David Abram in particular feels like the, 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 um, the emergence of reading and seeing symbols is something that started to, to reinforce this bifurcation from nature. That it, that it separated us in a, in, in a, in a particular way. It, it, it cut us off from really uh, being sensitive to this language that we've been listening to, at least our ancestors, for millions of years. I don't know if I completely could believe it, but I find it compelling. <laughs> I like to throw it out there. So getting this in a, in a visceral way, this work a little bit? If I ask this question of what are, what are those love letters saying to me? What do I hear from them? And I just want to share with you just tidbits of what I've heard and it's so difficult to put into words and so it will be so inaccurate. But for me, sometimes there's such a power to that beauty when I deeply touch it. And it might be just for a moment. Or there's this the touching of the beauty, the visceral touching of the beauty. Not the thinking about it and not being lost in it, but touching it. And so I want to just be clear, clear about this distinction. Because just noticing this in your practice, I think is so fascinating. Because often we can be out there and it can be like, wow, this is so beautiful, this is so cool, like I need to bring my friends here. And then I'm not really touching it. I'm thinking about it. I'm excited about it, but there's not a touching of it. And this can happen when, when there's a, a, a touching of beauty. There can be a spinning off of kind of lostness. Maybe you can relate to this where you notice thoughts like that. The haiku poet Basho puts it so well and so concisely, this dynamic that happens when we're moved by, by beauty. In this haiku, just three lines. It says, even in Kyoto, hearing the cuckoos cry, I long for Kyoto. Mm -hmm. Here I am, here I am, I'm already in Kyoto, even in Kyoto, and hearing the cuckoos cry, and, and here I am here longing for Kyoto. Here I am at Vallecitos, hearing the chirping of the birds, Longing to really be here, advice he does. <laughs> Maybe you've had experiences of that. But it's different, just the rustling of the leaves. Or you might have had a moment on the porch of looking out where there was just that being with, which is different than the story. It's different than the description. That's what I call the visceral hearing these love letters. Again, Basho, you're going to get a lot of haiku tonight, so it just rolls out that way. Again, expresses this so well. And I think what I love about haiku is how simple it is, which I think speaks to the the simplicity of the practice we're trying to engage in. It says, it's not like anything they compare it to. The summer moon.
Did you see the moon last night? Mm -hmm. Just that. Just that experience of seeing the summer moon. To me, that's hearing the love letters that are being spoken. So at one and the same time, I want to point out how simple this is. It's just like hearing the sound of the rain. It's just like feeling the abdomen rising and falling because we are nature. That's a love letter. Feeling sadness or anger. The arising of thoughts, that's nature. What's it like just to touch that? To notice it for what it is, an arising in nature. So these love letters are so simple, but what I find is that um, most of the time they're not in words. It's a different language than words. The Swedish poet uh, Thomas Tunstrammer put it well. He actually won the Nobel Prize in 2011. It says, tired of all who come with words. Instead, I went to the snow-covered island. The wild does not have words. The unwritten pages spread themselves out in all directions. I come across the marks of deer's hooves in the snow. Ah, language, but no words. Can you begin to hear that language out there? And maybe more specifically, you know, it's the question about how does, what are those love letters telling you about navigating the difficulties that are arising on this retreat? What's it like to sit out there and to see how sitting out there might inform you how to be with your racing mind or the difficult emotion or the confusion that's arising or the challenging health issue that you're navigating. What do the trees say to you? Or the river? Or the birds? How do they inform your practice? What do you discover? Because I have no idea what they'll say to you, but I'm so curious. For me at times what's made it so difficult is that sometimes I've gone out into the woods with my troubles, which I do often. That's what I love about living in Flagstaff is the forest is, it's a, it's a five or ten minute walk from where, where I live, where my partner and I live. So I feel very grateful for that, to go out and practice in that space. And sometimes I realize I complicate listening to those love letters because 
The thing is, is I want an answer. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Can I have one of those? An answer? <laughs> the, the, the first uh, Goenka retreat I did, as some of you might know these Goenka retreats, there's these kind of um, structured 10-day Vipassana retreats, and I was in Igatpuri, India. It was actually the place uh, S.N. Goenka was living there at the time. I was, I'd done a couple of retreats, but I was really quite new to practice, and I, I didn't know what I was doing. Let's be clear about that. I didn't really know. Just a minute. Is it the battery prime? Yeah, I think so. Is the other one? And when I was there, there were a few practitioners that I had met who had been practicing for a very long time, between 10 or 20 years. And I asked them, because I think this is why I was practicing, I said, so have you solved a lot of your problems through this practice? And they, much to my disappointment, said no. <laughs> Which was a little bit confusing to me. And, uh, but he said, but one of them said, but I have noticed that many of them have dissolved. Mm. Which I appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes, uh, for me, with my troubles, I sometimes don't get a, a, a quote-unquote answer, but sometimes I get a visceral feeling of how to be with it. Sometimes from trees, it's the sense of, of patience or equanimity. The, the enduring all all the seasons that come. You know, or sometimes, especially here, the quality of spaciousness, holding my troubles in such a bigger space than just my teeny little body. And so many other, I think, lessons can be learned from those letters around our troubles. So I invite you to ask that question to see what comes when things are difficult. Much better responses than what you'll get from me, probably, so I suggest it. And it points me in a particular direction when I have that openness, because often when I'm out there with that question, I have an openness to what's also inside, so because what's inside also is nature. To be with the anger or the sadness or the confusion or just the wandering mind with the same thoughts, bringing the attention back to the breath, 
that openness to be with the fabric of experience, the nature of experience in that way. Setting aside the need to figure out so quickly and to be with. And yes, there's a place to figure out and to analyze and to reflect. I'm not trying to say that there's no place for that in our lives. It's such an important thing to learn how to do it and to do it skillfully. But if that's my entire life to just habitually do that around living, I find it such a, a meager way to, an impoverished way to live. But rather have a different way of relating to the things that arise as well. So a, a, a few other ways to kind of again have the sensitivity to the to those love letters out there that are being given to us moment after moment. And some of it comes back to what also Aaron touched upon last night was just this sense of feeling the body, awareness of the body, mindfulness of the body. So much for me, as I described in these, these examples I gave to you, is really, how is the body being impacted by being out there? And, and I want to point out, there can be such a huge, wide array of, of the feelings that come. Sometimes there's a feeling of openness, a feeling of touching that which is sacred. Uh, a sense of immensity and awe that can come. But also, uh, there can be something that is sometimes for me disturbing about being in nature. The feeling of a lack of control, because that's just the way it is. How little control I have. I can influence my life, but I don't control that whole world out there, and I don't control my whole life, that's for sure. And when I obsessively want to control It's a bad scene. But it's that feeling of that which can be disturbing. Or sometimes it feels humbling to be out there. But for me, sometimes it's feeling it through the body, and I don't want to assume that's going to be for all of you, but viscerally, how how are those experiences impacting you while you're out there with whatever's arising for you? And there's different flavors that sometimes uh, pop up in nature that, that to me are so much the expression of, of the Dharma, such as the, these, these manifestations of impermanence, really this core teaching that we find in Buddhism, especially in early Buddhism. The sound of the flowing of the water, the, the seeing of the flowing of the water, the rustling of the, the leaves, the visual of that, the sound of that. And what I've noticed, and this is so important uh, for Vipassana practice, is it's just the feeling of that again and again and again, not thinking about impermanence. If all I needed to do to become free was think about impermanence, boy, I'd be all over that. It'd be over by now. The, the, the fact that things change is not like a complex idea. But to get it in my bones so I can start to live from that understanding that things change. And I feel so informed by this environment that it's, it's, it's sharing that with me moment after moment after moment, not through words, but through the direct experience of that and allowing it to influence and shape how I am in the world, how I relate to the world, how I relate to others. Because I notice about this mind, it's so much of 
the dilemma that I have around the human predicament is being in conflict, in contention with the way things are and how they change. I'm totally into change as long as it's on my own terms <laughs> and my own pace around the things that I want changing. That's not an understanding of, of change. So I feel like there is a, a different way of being in the world once we get it in our bones. Again, Basho, I think, expresses it so well, the, the promise of coming to a different understanding of impermanence. Again, so simple, something I aspire to. On a branch, floating down the river, a cricket singing. Mm -hmm. I too hope to be singing on this little branch floating down the river that I'm on, that I too often forget about. So again, this question of what you, will you discover when you hear those love letters outside, whether it be around flow and impermanence, around how to navigate difficulties, around death and dying, maybe around the quality of spaciousness, the spacious quality of awareness that we can get a sense of in such a spacious place. like to end tonight by just bringing in one more piece of this practice. So we have this, this, this invitation I'm giving you of, of really finding the teacher outside and seeing what they're saying to you, what the language is, and really hearing that, hearing those love letters. And yet there's another facet of practice that I find so important. Many of you have sat with me and probably heard this so many times because I find it so important to talk about most retreats I, I, um, I give, and it's, it's around how we hold what we're doing here in this path. And, and the Buddha, Buddha gives a very specific way of how we hold this particular path in this practice. He talks about kind of the, the, the highest and most supreme practitioner. And he says it's, it's the individual who practices for their own benefit, and for the benefit of others, that is the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. So that I'm practicing here and I'm engaged in such a spiritual practice, not only for my own life, but for the world out there and for other people's lives. This is so intertwined, I think, with an understanding of what it is to be nature and to hear those love letters that are being spoken to us moment after moment. And I also find it important for other reasons as well. Some of it is just kind of the trajectory of our society. You know, there's been critiques sometimes of kind of modern Buddhism and even modern secular mindfulness, how there can be this creeping in of, of what one author calls the triumph of narcissism. Mm where there's a, a, a taking of a spiritual practice and it, and it becomes this narcissistic endeavor. 
and it can be uh, unfortunately an, an all too easy thing to do where uh, it's just about our lives you know and, and of course this can cross over where our blindnesses are sometimes in terms of how we're situated in terms of class or race that we're, we're sometimes separated from uh, much of the, the suffering of our society and sometimes separated from the suffering of an environment where we can be kind of in a shell in a way and not touching that. And, and of course, I'm, I, I think being overwhelmed by any suffering doesn't do anyone any good, so I'm not advocating that. But to notice that our lives are inextricably intertwined with, with the world that we live in. And to somehow express that in a way that fits for you, if it's something that you're moved by, that what you're doing here goes way beyond your life. And sometimes I think maybe I'm just sharing this with you, this, this, this injunction to practice only for ourselves or for others, maybe. Maybe I'm just trying to start some kind of conspiracy, right? <laughs> you know, you come here to Vallecitos and, and we have you start chanting these weird things in the Pali language. Maybe getting involved in some kind of conspiracy. But I think it's true. In the sense of because I just learned something so fascinating about this word, conspiracy. <laughs> so before the 14th century, the, the, the word that conspiracy came from was conspire, mm-hmm. which, which literally means to, to breathe together. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of conspiracy I'm so interested in. <laughs> to begin to understand that we're all breathing together. And this too, I think, gets evoked, or this is something that we can hear from the love letters in the wild, is the reminder that we're breathing together. And if we're breathing together, that means when I practice, I have a chance to influence the breath of others. So it might be something you want to play with, this, this simple sense of reminding yourself of this. And the way I do this is before a formal sit, you can do this before each formal sitting meditation you do or before you go for a walk. Or it could be just once in the morning, like in the mid-morning sit. That right when you begin to sit, putting forth this intention, may, may the, this practice today or may this practice that I'm doing for the next half hour, 45 minutes, go to the benefit of all beings. Or maybe at the end of the sit, you say this, oh, may... May, may the efforts I have just put forth, may the, may the benefit of that, may the merit of that go towards all, all living beings. Even if your mind wandered for the entire time. <laughs> That's why I like, I'm just looking for the willingness to be present. I have a pretty low bar. Because <laughs> then I still get to share something. And I invite you to become curious. How does that influence what you're doing here? It's the same practice. I'm not asking you to do something different just to broaden what you're doing here. In some ways, it's just an acknowledgement of the language of those love letters and what they're telling us out there.
maybe I'll, I'll end, like to end tonight with a an expression of this quality. Just so you know, the the, the word comes in later Buddhism. Um, it's really this quality of bodhicitta, this this practicing for the benefit of all beings. And there's a one traditional expression of this around. <laughs> this uh, dedication to Red Tara that I want to share with you, and it's a it's a kind of a, um, a grand expression of this uh, practicing for the benefit of all beings. I like grand. That's why I like elements of Mahayana Buddhism. They they, they understand how to make make the practice grand and outrageous sometimes, which I appreciate. It goes like this. It says. Throughout my many lives and until this moment, whatever virtue or goodness I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and in every future life. And may I clearly perceive all experience to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night, and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising of every phenomena. May I quickly attain awakening, may I quickly attain a freedom, in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all beings. So may our learning to read those love letters out there go to the benefit of all beings. Thank you. Let's just sit for just a moment here. Last sit after this half hour walking meditation, we'll begin with the, the chanting and then have an open sitting.